He was for me a kind of test. Can you be merciful? Can you find compassion for those toward whom you feel nothing? Our cold hearts reveal us. I never did see nothing like that. I never did dream nothing like that. I imagined all the trees could see and the sun could move. The moon would slide into a place to wait for eternity. Hello and welcome to Daring to Tell. I'm Michelle Rado. That was author Frank Heiler, who has a lot to share with us on today's episode, including a great story he has. But before we go into that, I want to first share a quote from one of my favorite authors, Danny Shapiro. It's from her book called Still Writing, The Perils and Pleasures of a Creative Life. And this quote is from the end of a chapter called Exposure. I cannot tell you that you will not be on the receiving end of the raised eyebrow, the small smile, the presumed intimacy with those who will think that now they know you. I cannot tell you that these moments will not bring with them an unease, a discomfort that will, irony alert, in fact, make you feel, however briefly, exposed by the very question. But I can tell you that the writing of a book, no matter how deeply, profoundly personal, if it is literature, if you have attended to the formidable task of illuminating the human heart in conflict with itself, will do the opposite of expose you. It will connect you with others, with the world around you, with yourself. This is something I think about a lot when I write. What will this piece of writing say about me? Earlier in that chapter, she also spoke of how there have been people who come up to her with that look, the look that says, I know all about you. But she goes on to assert in her response, whether or not that's actually back at the people who are giving her the looks or maybe just to herself, that yes, maybe you do know a lot about me, but nothing more than what I have chosen to tell you. So that is what I aspire to when I'm choosing the words that I put down or the words that I choose to share with you, which is how I am sort of backing my way into my introduction this week of today's author, Frank Heiler. Frank is an ER doctor in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and he's also a writer and has a new book out that is called White Hot Light. It's I'm going to call it a nonfiction mosaic. They're individual little stories that are glimpses into humanity. And we'll hear his sort of definition of what humanity is. All these little takes create a very strong separate image when you step back and take them all in as a whole. He wrote his first nonfiction work about emergency medicine early in his career, and this isn't exactly a sequel to it, but, well, 
Let's just get into it. He can tell you all about it. Here is Frank Introduce Hyland. yourself to me a little bit. <laughs> and I'm curious to know how you got started on writing this book. Like, where did the idea for it come from? Thank you. The idea for this book was sort of a natural evolution. I've been a physician for about 25 years now, which is um, hard to believe. But about 20 years ago, I wrote a book called The Blood of Strangers, which is short vignettes, stories about residency training and the immediate period after that. After about 20 years had passed, I've always been a writer. I've always been uh, drawn to that. I was an English major in college. My initial orientations and everything was much more toward the humanities, toward the sciences. And I, I wound up going to medical school instead of doing any of the other things that people from the humanities tend to be drawn to. And as a doctor, I realized that these uh, stories around me were just incredibly powerful and compelling and interesting. That's what led me to write this first book. Afterwards, I wrote an, uh, several novels and a uh, novella and all the while having a full-time job as an emergency physician in a trauma center. And about 20 years after the publication of my first book, I realized suddenly that 20 years had passed, that I had this, I think that my thoughts and perceptions of this strange world had changed, you know, that I was older, that wasn't the same person in some ways, or at least the experiences that I had weren't the same. And I had a sabbatical at that point, because I'm uh, on the faculty of a medical school. So I had six months off, two of which I spent at a writer's colony. They don't call it colony anymore, but the McDowell colony to sit there in a cabin working on anything I wanted to, which was just in a kind of an amazing uh, kind of gift, really. Yeah, I um, think that's the kind of thing so many writers dream of. It's like, I just want to sit alone and write and don't have anyone bug me or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This came along at just a perfect time for me. I'd never had that. I'd been working in a medical center in a, in a hospital for decades, really, and had always been squeezing kind of writing in around it as a hobby in a way, although obviously it's been more, more than just a hobby for me. But suddenly I had this opportunity. And so I was able to work very sort of calmly and diligently for two solid months. And the result was I had a manuscript. I mean, I had written some of the other stories before. And so that was the genesis of this book, which was in some ways a, a midlife sequel to the first book. It has somewhat similar structure in that it's short pieces. I wouldn't really call them vignettes and I wouldn't call them quite essays. I mean, they're more sort of like creative nonfiction stories, I would say, something mm -hmm. like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was going to say it's a sequence of a whole bunch of short stories. Had you been collecting them in your hobby-ish time writing, like did you have a notebook full of them? How did that happen? No, I didn't. I mean, I had written a few of them over the years and they were just stored in a drawer, but I, I don't sit there and take notes and I don't, that was one of the interesting things about this experience at McDowell was sitting there every day and I would sit back and think back about 20 years or the time that had passed and something would come up, mm -hmm. a story would come up. And so I, I never took notes. I didn't keep a journal or anything like that. And really the intention as I was writing the book and hopefully for any readers out there, it's not really intended to be purely about medicine. There's a lot of medical stories, a lot of medical books out there that focus on the technical aspects or the more dramatic or salacious even aspects of medicine, particularly emergency medicine. And I wasn't interested in that. I was trying to do something, talk about more of the human side and not necessarily 
the softer, gentler human side in a way that a novelist might do that's really intended to be about larger subjects than simply medicine, that medicine is the um, forum with which these stories take place, but hopefully that they're applicable in a much larger sense. You were saying about being 20 years into your time as a physician, and my best friend is a nurse, and she and I are the same age, and we have also been in our respective positions for maybe another decade on top of that. (laughs) So she and I often just sort of muse over, wow, we were always the youngest people and now we're suddenly the oldest people. And when did that happen? And so I don't know if that feels a little bit like you were at your job and one day was the senior guy here. Yeah, absolutely. That's terrible. It's terrible when that happens, isn't it? (laughs) Yes. I know. Like, wait, what happened here? Wait, how did that happen? Yeah. And I think particularly when you're working in a, um, in an educational setting, and I think a lot of college professors or teachers have that feeling too. It's just, it's the students, the residents, the medical students, they seem ageless because they're just all coming through, but you're aging around them. So it's a very um, yeah. uh, sort of unsettling thing where, you know, <laughs> t- of teaching, particularly over time is that you feel like time only applies to you, but not somehow to the students. Uh, which of course isn't true, but, but um, yeah. And, and the passage of time is a strange and difficult experience, I think, in a lot of ways. And for me, at least, that was part of the reason for writing this book. I mean, I suddenly realized, you know, exactly what you said. God, all this time is gone. It, it didn't, it just slipped away, it seemed. And have I learned any lessons from, from this sort of work, from this intensity and this procession of events and this procession of good things also? I mean, I don't want to say that Right. It's all dark. No. One of the mistakes that people make when they sometimes, I believe, talk about humanity in medicine or humanity in any intense field, they confuse that with kindness or lightness, mm-hmm. not darkness. Mm-hmm. So you don't, when people talk, talk about humanity, they're not talking about the dark side of humanity. They're not talking about the harder elements of life, typically. So I was trying in this book to, to do justice to both of those things, not simply to tell sort of affirming stories. And, and I realized right. that there is a lot of darkness in the book, but it was intended to be kind of a, almost a Buddhist meditation in a way, in right. a weird way, yeah. where you start off with the hardest things in life and ask yourself then, okay, well, what do you make of that? Do you come to any lessons? Is there any value in seeing things like this? Yeah, I I don't know. That's the part that I really enjoyed and that I would say, I guess, I'm sort of drawn to in reflecting the really tough stuff that we deal with and the stuff that I think sometimes people have a harder time talking about, which is a little bit behind the concept when I started thinking about putting a podcast out called Daring to Tell. It's like, well, Mm -hmm. let's talk about some of the hard stuff, too. Yeah. I, I mean, no, look, you don't want to inflict these miserable stories on people and say, oh, <laughs> that's not the point. It's like, right. oh, that was a downer. Oh, here's another downer. <laughs> Thanks a lot. You know, that's not that's not the goal. But one of the reasons that medicine is treated and contextualized so carefully in society, right? There's an accepted narrative that come up around medicine typically, which is the narrative of salvation in one form or another, typically, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, that somebody does something heroic or somebody's particularly competent and brilliant and saves the, you know, the patient. There's a natural human inclination toward redemption and happy endings. 
And then the other is the overly dramatic. And then when healthcare professionals, doctors in particular, tend to write about medicine, they tend to be pretty cerebral, pretty abstract about it, not as emotionally, not engaged really in ways that are beyond the intellect because doctors are very comfortable talking in those voices, the rational, the calm, these are cultural values in medicine for good reason. So I was attempting in this book to be more true to this world and to ask questions, okay, are there lessons to learn? Is there anything to take away from seeing these events? And how do you find some kind of solace in the face of them, wisdom in the face of them, suspension perhaps of your own ego in a way? So one more question, I think, about the writing before I have you read the piece that I was drawn to today. Back to you're at the McDowell Colony, and you don't have notes, and these stories are kind of coming back to you. I feel like as a writer, and as particularly as a writer dealing with nonfiction, remembering things is tough. And how did you get back into so many moments? Did one lead to the next? Did you have strategies for kind of going back into your memory to jar it about certain things? Yeah, I would think back and think of things. Now, I don't think I made things up. This is creative nonfiction in the sense that it's a little bit between fiction and nonfiction traditionally. It's not carefully researched and tape recorded. It's filtered through memory. Like so many memoirs are, and like so much fiction is actually. But the essence of every story, I really tried my absolute best to make true. I did not add endings. I did not change outcomes. Right, right. I didn't do any of those things. And then granted, with their issues with patient confidentiality and so on, I certainly made efforts to change descriptions around that uh, to protect people. And so they wouldn't be identified. But there's something about the kernel of each story that I sought to be true to. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's, uh, it's obviously a, a kind of a fine line to walk. And we make these distinctions between fiction and nonfiction, but there's a border land between the two. Mm-hmm. Um, but did you, when you were writing one, did it spark a memory for another, that kind of a thing? Often? Yes. Yeah, it did. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think there's anything unique about, my experience. I mean, I think if anybody were stuck in a cabin with, I wouldn't say stuck, volunteer right. to go, you know, to, and asked to think back on the past 20 years, you'd be, you'd be amazed how many things without distraction come back to you. That in itself, I think is a little brave to take on and to give yourself the time to do it. Well, it's hard to, most of our lives are busy and. Right. To slow down. Noise. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to ask you then to read The Sunflower and if you can introduce it as well. And if there's anything you want to say in particular to introduce it, that's fine. And then we'll chat again when you're, when you get to the end. Okay. So these stories in the book are variable. Some of them are about patients. Some of them are about colleagues. Some of them are about my own experiences often before I became a doctor or was in was in the, involved in the hospital. So this is a story called The Sunflower. She lay there listening, expressionless, with her daughters beside her. The Vietnamese translator spoke through a video console from California. 
She says she's had the pain for a year. A tiny woman, thin as a child. Her daughters looked at me flatly, and then the eldest turned and addressed the translator through the machine. She's saying that if you don't know what it is, then why is she getting worse? I don't know, I replied. Ask her why she missed her appointment with the specialist. The translator spoke at length, and I wondered what else was being said or why. She didn't have a ride, the translator said finally. Ask her if she's lonely, I said, looking at her daughters. I know she lives by herself. The translator spoke, and the woman answered. No, the translator said. She says she's not lonely. She says she has a pain in her stomach. Let me see if the labs are back, I said, because it was an endless circle. They exchanged their looks again. Back at the desk, I opened the note on the computer and looked at the dozens of visits stretching back for years, and it was then that I saw his name, Joe. I suddenly understood that he had been sitting where I was sitting, typing his note into the same computer about the same woman and the same daughters just a little way back in the past. It felt entirely ghostly to read what he'd written about that woman and to see how exactly his thoughts about her echoed my own. Joe was an enormous man. His weight hung over him like a question no one wanted to ask. How could he allow himself to be so big? Every time he came in for the long night, where he would work alone in the low acuity section of the ER, he would meditate in the break room for a few minutes before his shift began. He'd sit down and shut his eyes with his hands outstretched and listen to something through earbuds on his cell phone. It might have been music, it might have been a sermon or a self-help book or a mantra of some kind. I never heard it because he kept the volume low. And if I entered the break room to find him there with his eyes closed, listening to whatever it was, I always left. I always stepped away because it was unsettling to see him filling the chair in his cowboy boots with his black goatee and his ponytail and all that weight, so visibly preparing for the hours ahead. The beginning of a 12-hour night shift when you drive in feels a little bit like the end. You feel the weight of exhaustion before you because it's always an ordeal. Everything feels a little off. Your headlights swinging through the empty parking garage, the sound of your own footsteps in the dark as you walk through it. Once you're working, it becomes ordinary again. The familiar struggle against your body at three or four in the morning, the flash of alertness when the pagers go off, the charts before you with their troubles, the way you must remind yourself to pay attention, the way you can feel your own mind grow duller and then sharpen again as the sun rises. You put aside the little whisper of fear in the background that never leaves you, alone with the events and the decisions they require. Joe worked a lot of nights. He remained a stranger, someone no one wanted to get close to. Sometimes things were said, and they weren't kind remarks, but no one really cared enough for outright cruelty. It was mostly indifference, a faintly dismissive tolerance against the background of the lobby and its heartlessness, a man whose single distinguishing feature was the size of his body. But Joe was good at his job, 
which his weight obscured. His body and his quiet manner hid his private intelligence from everyone. And he worked alone, all night, steadily, without fail. I trusted him without respecting him, and that's the truth. I judged him, just like everyone else. Sometimes there are those who reveal our fears. I could be him, you think. But I thought of him as someone I could never be, as someone with whom I had nothing whatever in common. I didn't like him or dislike him. We both saw the other with almost perfect indifference, neither friendly nor unfriendly. In the end, I understood that I didn't know him at all, where he'd come from, or where he was going. But the nurses told stories. They talked to passions of ex-wives and girlfriends, and they spoke of a child, an infant, somewhere in the middle. The child was sick at one point, that much I did know. They knew this because he told them in his low moments, of which I think there were many. Once he talked to me about motorcycles, the Harley he rode on the weekends out through the desert to various towns, and he told me he liked taking photographs, small talk, I suppose, the kind you reach back into your memory to find after things happen. He'd come from somewhere in the Midwest. He'd worked in a number of hospitals. Now he was here for a while, a few years, maybe. He wasn't sure. I suppose the reason that I started thinking about Joe again was because he was, for me, a kind of test. Can you be merciful? Can you find compassion for those toward whom you feel nothing? Our cold hearts reveal us. Nursing is full of the echoes of damage. You can't talk about this. But so many in nursing put up with bad partners and struggling children. So many are caught in the endless cycle of pleasing the weak and appeasing the cruel. The pattern repeats, and repeats most of all in the personalities of the night, in those who choose the night because they do not feel as if they quite belong in the day. The night shift is for the uneasy and the unsettled, those on the edges of the crowd, those who are lonely and sometimes have secrets and want to step away just a little from the rest of the world. A hospital is purer at night than in the day. There's a sense of being left alone, where no one bothers you, where it's just the work, where the quiet is greater and longer as the small hours pass. The price you pay for the slower procession and the greater intimacies where Joe confessed his life to the nurses around him is the time falls upon you more heavily. You feel the ache in your body and your mind slows and you have to get up and walk around and shake yourself awake because you always have to pay attention. The nurses helped him as they do. Later, Anna told me what happened to Joe. Anna's a quiet woman, dark-haired, dark-eyed, born and raised in this city, a woman who hasn't traveled far, with children of her own, and a life she doesn't talk about very much or share. She's been a nurse for a long time. Her family has been in New Mexico for hundreds of years. Joe had split from his wife and moved to a cheap apartment. His wife kept the child, their infant daughter, much of his money went to them, and it was enough but no more, because Joe was a physician's assistant, not a doctor, and so was paid half the salary for the same work. This is the future. It's business. So people like Joe are in demand. There are jobs everywhere and choices, but he liked the desert and the empty spaces, and he couldn't leave anyway if he wanted to help raise his little girl. 
Joe was lonely, and for companionship, he got a dog at a shelter. The dog was young and full of energy, a thin brown New Mexican mix, and I saw a picture of it once on a cell phone as he held it in his arms. He was trying to lose weight. He walked his dog. The dog was his companion and his encouragement. On a snowy morning, with ice on the sidewalks and the dog pulling hard on the leash, he slipped. Joe weighed over 300 pounds, and he was of average height. He fell with enough force to tear his hamstring almost completely off the bone. Anna took the dog and cared for it, and she visited him in rehab later. I didn't know any of this at the time. I only knew I hadn't seen him for a couple of weeks. I didn't even realize he was gone. I'm not sure if I would have talked as easily to the nurses during the day and learned the story. They were women in their 30s and 40s with jobs and troubles and families, and they knew all the details of his life, the turmoil, the loneliness, and even at times they gossiped and laughed about him. But in the end, they helped him when he fell because he had no one else. It's an American story, that loneliness. It's one of the struggles of being white in America, which no one ever talks about, because white people are so often alone at the end. Their companions come in ones and twos or not at all. The white American family is scattered and indifferent and far away, taken by circumstance, by jobs and marriages and divorces and all the rest, to other places, to other states and cities, lost to individualism, to the marketplace, and the idea that everyone must make their way alone. The surgery to reattach a hamstring that's been torn off the bone is brutal and painful. And when you're that heavy, everything is worse. The weeping wound, the bedpan, the catheter, the sweat and odor, the impossibility of keeping clean. So it was an ordeal for him, a terrible one, trying to heal with all that weight and all that moisture in the wound. He was in the facility on the slow recovery on the antibiotics when it happened. He texted Anna for help when they ignored him. She showed the text to me because she'd saved them. She wasn't crying, but she was close to crying. I think I'm having a PE, he'd written. They won't answer the call button. I held her phone in my hand and read the desperate, terrified texts one after the other, texts she hadn't seen for a few hours after it was too late. I imagined him, enormous in the bed on a Sunday afternoon, unable to get up on his own, trapped by the indifference and ignorance of the attendants who didn't recognize the emergency, even though he told them what was wrong. He must have felt like he was being buried alive. He was correct, also. It was a PE, a pulmonary embolism, blood clot rising into his lungs because he'd been on his back for weeks. It causes pain and breathlessness and a sense of terror when the clot is large, as his was. So he lay there, texting and waiting and crying out for help. And when the ambulance finally arrived, he was dead. For so many, the story ends there. An obituary in the paper, a service by a grave, absences that are filled in again so quickly by the ordinary lives passing around them, the primal indifference we have toward almost everyone we know. It takes effort to resist it. It takes something larger and perhaps better than the self. It takes someone like Anna, who surprised me entirely with what she did next. She organized an exhibition of his photographs. She found them on his computer in his apartment because he'd given her a key.
The nurses who'd worked with him for those few years contributed to a pool of money. They're not poor, but bills are often a struggle. $100 means something to them. $100 is more than a gesture. But they each kicked in $100, and then they sat down and looked through thousands of photographs. Joe had taken it seriously. He had a good camera, and he rode out most weekends or on days off on his Harley, and New Mexico was full of empty roads, full of blue sky and rock formations and pinyon pine and cedar and sagebrush and coyotes and elk in the northern grasslands and black lava in the west and miles of empty desert in the south. They printed and mounted the ones they liked the best. They rented one of the public libraries at the edge of town. They bought white cake from a supermarket and bottles of Coke. And they posted flyers in the ER and sent out a group email. The library was 40 minutes away from my house and I almost didn't go. The truth is that I forced myself to go because Joe, for me, was not one of the precious few. Had our positions been reversed, I never would have expected him to come. I was a bit older than he. He was able to carry his weight as he did because he was only in his early 40s. In a few more years, it would have become impossible for him. But I did it. I got in my car and followed their directions out to the suburbs where the houses were a little cheaper and the crime not as bad, where people with jobs but not much money can raise a family well enough to keep it all going. The nurses were there with their husbands, just a few, and they're surprised to see me. But they're also happy to see me as we all ate white cake with vanilla frosting and drank a little Coke. Their budget was small, and so there weren't that many photographs on the wall. Barely a dozen, in frames from Hobby Lobby, each with a careful handwritten title. Most of the photographs were good. They were good in the way that photographs for sale in local restaurants are good, or the way that photographs that win prizes in high schools are good. An arch, a door, an adobe wall, red chili peppers in the sun, an empty road, aspens in the height of color up by Santa Fe, a man riding a horse with the sun behind him and white clouds over the Sangres, and Carlsbad deep in the cave underground with floodlights. But the sunflower was better than the rest. It was taken up close with an excellent lens and leapt out at me in black and white. I stood in front of it and let it fill me up a little because it was beautiful. The event was sparsely attended. The time was bad and it was a long way and all the rest. None of the other doctors came and I didn't blame them. The reasons for my presence were complex, but in the end, I think I went because the nurses had humbled me with their kindness. I saw it so clearly and when I measured myself against it, I knew that I felt short. A 40-minute drive on a dark evening felt like an effort and a sacrifice in service of self-congratulation. But I was wrong, because when I looked at the sunflower, I did in the end feel something for him after all. I think now that I went for that, because the absence of sadness feels so dangerous and empty. His dictation read, 66-year-old Vietnamese-speaking female with a history of chronic abdominal pain and multiple prior ED visits presents today with the same complaint. She is well-appearing with normal laboratory values. I do not believe imaging is indicated. I've encouraged her to follow up with her primary care provider to not miss future appointments as she has done many times in the past 
and to return for worsening symptoms. I explained this in detail to the family who were present with the assistance of the Vietnamese interpreter. Then he discharged her with a diagnosis of chronic abdominal pain. So I walked back in the room and I called the interpreter in California again on the video console as we waited in silence. I'm sending her home, I said, when the screen came to life. All of her tests today are normal. She needs to keep her appointments. I've looked at the records and I know this has happened many times before. Do they understand? The interpreter spoke through the speaker and her voice seemed very far away, disembodied and tinny as the patient and her daughters strained to hear. They answered and then the interpreter spoke again. Yes, she said, they understand. There is so much here. Yeah, I've never read that actually. I've never read that fully, so aloud, so it was fun. Thank you. Sure, thank you. I really enjoy hearing it and I'll even just chime in there to say, I love hearing writers read their work. (laughs) It's just, no one can read it like you can because you knew what you were thinking. So one question I often ask is, was there anything about writing this or reading it that felt risky to you? Or what was the most risky part of this as you put it down? Well, I think so. I I, I do. I think uh, it was risking uh, somehow personal revelation. You know, the notion of indifference, the the notion that we are indifferent uh, is not something that people want to admit typically. Um, And that sort of tension between wanting to have an emotional reaction to an event and and yet not quite being able to or wishing you were better than you are perhaps you know and revealing that perhaps you're not at times at least um, I think those are those are uh, conditions that ver- most people have right at times in the life and and yet you know facing that and confronting it and admitting it is is a bit is challenging I mean, this, this poor guy, he just, it was just a tra- absolute tragic thing what happened to him. It was just a catastrophe and, a, and so bitterly unfair, right? And yet you see those and you, and you, you know, you want to recognize them for their cruelty and it's hard to sometimes. And so that was one of the central challenges of the story for me. Yeah, I, I think for me also, it was the ability to sort of hold up the mirror to oneself and say, what are my own indifferences, judgments, all those kind of things to, um, to look at ourselves in that way and see how it interacts, especially in the workplace and then especially in a workplace where health is the right. item on the line. Yeah. Without hopefully making it about yourself. I mean, the story was not, I didn't want it to be about me at all. It, this is more like my, an attempt to explore coldness and the, the distinction or the fine line between compassion and empathy and coldness and indifference. I feel like I always come back to, oh, what does this say about me? And that, I think that's why we read things is to learn something more about ourselves or to see this level of, of who we are ourselves. And I don't know, what, what do you think it says about judgment? I, I just loved the line 
can you be merciful? Can you find compassion towards those you feel nothing? Our cold hearts reveal us. And that was the thing that sort of spoke to me, like the things we don't necessarily want to see about ourselves and the way that we do judge others around us, even knowing that judging is inappropriate. I Well, and I'm going to keep talking just for another second, because I think that the judgments is obviously something everyone can relate to and is one of those things we're kind of not supposed to do. And also, what is it and your role as a physician? Judgments are what you need to do as part of your job. So maybe that comparison there. Yeah. uh, Well, we all make judgments all the time. And so saying that we shouldn't make judgments is, is quite silly, right? I mean, we all do that. We don't want to make unfair, cruel judgments, uh, but we still do that too, especially internally. And so this wasn't about, you know, me as an individual, it was about that process. I think that everyone or most people engage in, even Mm -hmm. if they're, you know, they'll, they'll have some dark thought about somebody and then they'll say, oh, I shouldn't think that, but they've already thought it, you know, so it's kind of too late. Right. So, um, and it's not that they necessarily act on this or do anything. Right. This is just, this is just human behavior. And the fact that I do think that we have for better or for worse, there's a few people around most people for whose loss is intolerable, you know, who, who, if something happens to them is, is truly as devastating. Right. And then there's a penumbra, you know, there's a little bit of a margin and it's not very far where, you know, you, you feel sad. Certainly you're mm-hmm. not, you know, it's not like you're cold hearted, terrible person, but right. there's just this, this essential indifference. And I think uh, that's one of the traits of, of human beings by necessity. Um, we've grown up through evolutionary times that are very, very hard. People die all the time. Death's part of the world. And we're quite inured to it, even now in the modern world, you know, where we have comforts and can pretend these forces don't exist. And right. so on. very, very indifferent to people just beyond even our immediate circle. Right. Um, and also, I think worth reflecting on a little bit. I mean, I'm not trying to yeah. dwell on our, our heartlessness, our collective heartlessness, but heartlessness is part of this world, very much so, and something we don't talk perhaps enough about. Exactly. And I I think that was what I was drawn to is just the shining a light on that a little bit. I feel like I related to the person who was at work for a while, then you realize you hadn't seen them in a long time. And then one day, like I'd see somebody in the hallway again, like, oh, hey, how you been? And then you realize, right, they weren't there anymore. They've been going through something. And yeah, we can't have ultimate empathy with everyone. But it reminds me sometimes like, oh, yeah, who who are those other people that we encounter in our lives? And yeah, we should aspire to less heartlessness. Yeah. Know? But heartlessness yeah. is very much part of who we are and, and all of us. Um, and it's not it's not a question of apologizing for that. It's a, right. it's a question of sort of, you know, being honest about these things. And then there's the layer of the patient who was there repeatedly, too, and trying to get her some help. Did she come back again? Did she follow up with her appointments? Or that's one of the things you probably you sometimes don't ever find out those follow-ups either. No, absolutely. And yes, this sort of thing happens all the time. I mean, often there is no great secret and often it is chronic 
you know, and there is no solution to the end and there is no moment or epiphany where a bond is formed between the caregiver and the patient and everything gets better. I mean, that's you know, sometimes, right. But just as often it's, it's this, it's, right, uh, right. it's the endless circle. Yeah. Yeah. So the other thing that this is about and that I wanted to talk about is the nurses because I feel like this is also about kindness and about how nurses care for people. That's what they do. And, and so I liked reading how you characterize and articulate the, the different shifts, the different types of people within the hospital. You have nurses, you have doctors, everyone does their own thing and has a different function and just what that function was and how it lent itself to this whole other side of your story. Yeah, no, absolutely. This is a absolutely a story of kindness and the recognition that the, the nurses were kinder than I was in that moment and the value of it, uh, the impressive nature of that, what they did, which I thought was very, very striking and, and frankly kind of profound. I mean, they didn't know him there very well either. The fact that they would do that, and they're all experienced people. They've been, they've seen this kind of stuff for forever, and then still, they, you know, they stepped up in a way that the rest of the hospital or the institution or the or the doctors, including myself, uh, completely failed to do. So another side, because there's so many elements to this, is also why I liked it so much. Um, but that ability to keep going amidst patient after patient after patient, shift after shift after shift. I mean, that was another effect that I felt after many of these stories and the experience of being an ER physician and just how tough it is to keep going day after day. And that's not really a question, but an observation. And you have other thoughts about yeah, I do. how I that think- weighs on you. Yeah. Right. I, look, life is hard and it's hard for a lot of people, most people, in fact, in different ways. And that's one of the, the things that we tell ourselves falsely that it shouldn't be hard. I mean, it, there's a lot of jobs that are hard, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, emergency medicine is hard in specific ways and easy in other ways, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. easy in the sense that there's, it's pretty well paid and you have time off and there's other great benefits to having a job like this. So a lot of people in America have it hard. A lot, a lot of people in America have it a lot harder than I do. And we're seeing some of the fruits of that hardship right now, not only with the, the political divisions in the country, but also, you know, reflected in a, this uh, horrific COVID-19 pandemic that we're in the midst of. That was another question I was just curious about talking with you to get your perspective on that. I mean, obviously, we are now coming up probably into close to a year of this pandemic. How have you seen that? impact what you do every day and what's the change since that well the change has been absolutely profound for all of us who work in hospitals i mean at this point i've gotten my second vaccine so i'm for the first time breathing kind of personal sigh of relief you know i think that uh those vaccines the evidence shows that they work that they work well and so i'm very grateful to have that vaccine um, because up till then, it was constant low-grade exposure and danger, constant fear of taking it home to your family, and then watching people just come one in after another, 
going up into the looking around in the ICU is just a horrifying sight of middle-aged and sometimes younger people on ventilators who are frankly dying, who are not likely to survive this. And watching the collective response in this country has been an absolute, utterly dismaying and frankly enraging in every way. The uh, sort of politicization of these issues, the the idiocy and profound irresponsibility of so many in America to confront a collective threat that should have been simple and easy is uh, utterly mystifying to me and many others who've worked in hospitals. A year later, we are still reusing personal protective equipment. A year later, we still do not have adequate federal guidelines or centralized authority. And the results speak for themselves. We have you know, nearly half a million dead in this country and countries who have acted responsibly like adults have in some cases only a few hundred dead. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you say it incredibly well. So sad. I don't have any other words than just so sad. Um, do you see the impact of this pandemic affecting your profession, affecting doctors in a different way? Yes, it's, it's affected doctors tremendously. I mean, now, finally, physicians and nurses and everyone who's sort of frontline healthcare worker is getting vaccinated. And so that's a, an enormous thing. But up till then, it was quite clear that the system was indifferent, largely, at least, to healthcare workers across the board. There was some rhetoric, otherwise just collective corporate indifference that's outrageous, frankly, and that I hope eventually um, there will be some consequences for that because yeah. thousands of thousands of healthcare workers have been killed by this and have brought it home to their families. Yeah. So how has it affected, um, well, taking care of patients in this setting where we still don't have patients who are immunized. So you're trying to separate and keep patients safe from one another because right. they can spread it to each other. It's very easy to catch this in the hospital, something else that hasn't been examined um, yet. So, and then trying to take care of all the other medical issues that already had created a very overburdened healthcare system where you've got mm -hmm. you know, just a little margin at any given time to care for what happens every day in an actuarial sense. And then you throw something like this on top of it. It's uh, no, no wonder that the medical system is struggling. And one of the uh, additional consequences of this is that censorship has been rampant throughout medicine. Healthcare workers, nurses, physicians, and censored have been times laid off, have been threatened mm. by basically corporate, corporate entities, business types who run hospitals in America for speaking out about a collective threat. So they'll say, you know, there's conditions, protesting against conditions, protesting against poor planning, lack of uh, personal protective equipment, any of the other things that have put themselves, they and others at risk. Speaking out about that, if you read the news, it's always, almost always, I should say, anonymous quotations for fear of retaliation from employers. Right. And this is endemic in America, and it's, again, a disgrace. And hopefully, you know, again, I hope there's some consequences to this later as well. Yeah. How do you keep going on every day? What do you find within yourself? Well, I don't, it's a very strange world. It's now where you, you walk in and you do your shifts and I'm working this afternoon and you just put on your mask and you go and you just see patients just like you, you know, just like you always do. And, and this is what people do in, in all fields. You know, everyone goes to work I mean, it keeps going to work. You know, you don't, um, 
there's an essential endurance within human beings and tolerance for, for darkness and, and suffering and so on, an essential toughness that people have that is true everywhere. You know, and mm-hmm. you see it all the time. And, and I think we spend too much time talking about sort of the delicacy of human beings, how vulnerable we all are and how vulnerable people are to traumas and so on. And perhaps not enough talking about their resilience. I couldn't agree more. I think that's a great observation. To bring it back to writing a little bit as we wrap up, do you draw any commonalities between your two, I'll call them two professions, between yourself as a writer and yourself as a doctor? And I will especially say maybe in regards to what it means to listen to people. Yeah, I think, um, right. I mean, people have asked me that question before. You know, I don't think being a writer makes me a better doctor at all. If that's the question. Um, I know that may not be what people. Yeah, hear, I don't know. I, I don't, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't think. I don't think that. You know, I'm not. I don't think I'm a better doctor for being a uh, for being a writer. I think they're separate, but they do share certain qualities. I think one is they reward observation, so they reward careful observation. Both of them. Right. Um, they reward, like you say, listening at times. Although listening can be problematic in medicine, uh, frankly. How so? <laughs> well, I mean, the, the, one of the standard narratives is you have to listen to your patients. Yeah. Right? And that's true, of course. Of yeah. course that's true. But what that narrative forgets is that the patient is an often an unreliable narrator mm-hmm. and in very profound ways. Yeah. And no one wants to hear that, but... <laughs> Um, you know, it's, it's absolutely true. And, it, and yes, you listen, but you also listen with a grain of salt all the time. Yeah. So they require yeah. listening though. They yeah. require observation. They require a, a sense of calm. They require a sense of stillness, I think. Both mm-hmm. of them. Right. Um, and, you know, and of course they require work and effort and discipline. Yeah, that's true. I don't know. I always think that the the work of writing is, it does take all that. And it's so solitary. We don't always, as writers, I don't think we know how, how we write. Like I think every, the way I write about things might be very different than the way you write about things. So, you know, when do you write or how do you write? And are, are you still writing now amidst all of your... Yeah. Um, well, I've written, let me see. This would be my fourth book. So, mm-hmm. and... I don't think there's a right answer to that. I I think you just have to have a a project or a story that you have enough passion about that you're just going to finish come hell or high water, frankly. You know, how you do it, whether you get up every day. I mean, I admire people who get up and work, you know, for hours every morning and then, you know, have a disciplined, structured life. I've never been able to do that. I just feel guilty enough if I haven't done it for a while that finally I get a project and then just, you know, I have to finish it basically. And that's the only way of doing it. Regardless how you do it, you've got to be just absolutely determined because it's kind of unpleasant a lot of the time, right? It's painful. Sort of like, these are sort of the perverse joys that people get out of things like running marathons or ultra marathons (laughs) or, you know, putting themselves through painful physical ordeals, like walking across, I don't know, Antarctica or something. I mean, that's... (laughs) Maybe yeah. that explains why I love those kinds of stories so much. Right. I, I just can't get enough of like exploring the Arctic sort of things. Yeah, no, I know. And it's, and, and it is sort of this masochistic act that hopefully, uh, you know, becomes 
means something. And then of course you question whether it means anything. And, you know, these are, this is just part of it. There's no magic answers. You just got to do it. No, exactly. Uh, yeah. And the way that we all do it is different, but I think the finishing part, I feel like I've been listening to a few things lately and the message that's been like hitting me recently is you have to finish it. And I feel like I've started so many things and yeah, the key is uh, finishing it. So that's yep. a good one. Well, Thank you so much for, for sharing this one with us. This is just such a terrific book. I cannot endorse it enough. So I will certainly encourage people to go check it out. I appreciate that you have the courage and tenacity and resilience to keep saying the things that people don't necessarily want to hear. But when, <laughs> when we all can listen, there's other rewards behind that too. So... Uh, Thank you, Michelle. Thanks a lot. I enjoyed, really enjoyed talking to you and uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. There is just so much I feel like I could follow up on after this essay and this conversation. I've thoughts about how this piece is a sort of meditation on loneliness and indifference and also a practice of unconditional kindness. I was also really struck by what he said about censorship and I was not present enough in the moment to stop and sort of follow up about that. I find myself to be a very slow thinker, a slow reader, a slow listener. I need time to allow these things to sort of seep into me and that's why I always have questions afterward that I realize I did not follow up on. But perhaps the most personal pleasure that I took out of this whole conversation was when he said how much he enjoyed reading this piece out loud. And that's something I just love hearing because I always, obviously, enjoy hearing writers reading their own work. One big question that I was too afraid to ask him because I felt I might be putting him on the spot was why didn't he read his book himself for the audiobook version, which I went to look up and is read by a narrator. So in fact, I did follow up with Frank about this after we had spoken in an email. And he said something that quite a few writers that I've spoken with have said to me. And that is that they often feel like a professional narrator can do a better job than they could do. Mm, okay, I get it. There are indeed tons of great voiceover talent out there. It is a profession unto itself for a very good reason. The work of doing professional narration is more than just reading. But still, I do find something extra great about when it's the writer reading his or her own work, and especially when it's first-person nonfiction. So I don't know. What do you think about that? I have a friend and former colleague who he and I have had very engaged back and forths about that very topic, and we don't see eye to eye on that one, and it's always kind of fun to debate it. So check out White Hot Light. I have links to it in the show notes. And if you download the audiobook, well, you can see who you prefer reading The Sunflower, Frank or the narrator. On the next episode of Daring to Tell, 
we'll hear from writer Peg Conway. Peg lost her mother to cancer when she was just seven, and her memoir is about the struggle she's lived with and been unwrapping since that time. I want so much to be over it, but the truth is that childhood loss never ceases to reverberate. Please subscribe so that you won't miss that story or any of our episodes that come out each Thursday. If you enjoy these episodes, I hope you'll share them with other writers, readers, friends, people in your life. If you have questions or comments, please email them to me. I am Michelle with two L's at michellerado.com, michelle at michellerado.com. Thanks so much for daring to listen.